preaching of God's Word then is in Ezra chapter 9, and there verses 5 through 15. As has been read, we take up what follows Ezra's initial humbling of himself at the hearing of the sins of God's people. And so he sat down and abased himself when he heard the report of the sins that were so prevalent among the people of Jerusalem. And now at the evening sacrifice, you'll note he arises from his heaviness, verse 5, having rent his garment and his mantle, and now he falls upon his knees and spread out his hands unto the Lord his God. This passage is testifying not that he's, as it were, finished his humbled posture, but that he's no longer paralyzed, as he's used the word twice, astonished by the sins of God's people. He now, having been abased, humbles himself now unto activity. And the activity is not such an activity that says, well, you know, I've worked it out, I figured it out. But rather, in his humble frame, he petitions confessing unto God the sins of God's people. And notice in verse 6, you have the beginning of it, Oh my God, I am ashamed and blush to lift up my face to Thee, my God, for our iniquities. The text is indicating that though Ezra personally is free from the sins of the leaders of Israel, of the people of Israel, yet he is remembering that he is united to these people. And so these are his people. And whereas they are the ones who have acted out the sin, yet this is not as if he is free from the impact of this sin. As they bear the name of God, he bears the name of God. And as their action shames the name of God, he feels the shame that is cast upon the name of God. I am ashamed. For our, the people of Israel's iniquities are increased over our heads. You'll notice he traces this back to previous days, the days of our fathers, And we have been handed over unto the nation of Babylon and the Persians. But notice verse 8, he indicates that there's this little space, this little moment in time where grace has been shown. And so he's getting at this. Our fathers and forefathers sinned tremendously such that after not heeding the prophet's warning and call to repentance, God finally had reached, as it were, the limit and he had cast them out of the promised land and had given them over unto that most searching chastisement of being exiled away in Jerusalem, being destroyed. And yet now, after the space of many years, a little space has been given and a little remnant preserved to escape and a little nail provided in this holy place that something may be hanged upon it. And God has given a little reviving in our bondage. God, notice verse 9, hath not forsaken us in our bondage, but hath extended mercy unto us. In light of this, he goes on, verse 10, Now our God, what shall we say after this? For we've forsaken thy commandments. Which commandment? Well, he explicitly notes, verse 11 and 12, borrowing from uh, the, the Torah, the Pentateuch, There were those commandments which said, The land unto which ye go to possess it is an unclean land with the filthiness of the people of the lands, with their abominations which have filled it from one end to another with their uncleanness. Verse 12, Give not your daughters unto their sons, and so on. Notice verse 13, Ezra continues, After all that has come upon us for our evil deeds and our great trespass, seeing that Thou, our God, has punished us less than our iniquities deserve, has given us such deliverance as this, should we again break Thy commandments and join in affinity with the people of the land. Here's his point. We, Your people who were delivered, 
we turned away from your clear commandment and we forsook it and joined in league with the nations which you said were to be destroyed. And we gave our daughters unto their sons and we took their daughters unto our sons and massive corruption multiplied so that even high places were created and knees were bowed to the images of Baal and Ashtaroth and so on. And after long forbearance and many warnings, the people approved impenitent, and you cast them out, and yet now you've brought them back. And instead of learning the lesson, in light of your mercy and kindness, they've turned again unto the very same things that had led to that first and great exile. And so Ezra confesses and humbles himself. Do you know that as he does so, he does so in a long train of others who have done so. You remember, for instance, one among many preceding Ezra, Moses. Moses led God's people out of bondage. You remember that. And quickly after that, they were groaning and complaining. And they constructed an image of Jehovah. This is important. The false worship in the wilderness was not worship unto a different God. It was worship of the true God through an image. That's the wickedness of what was done. That's the second commandment. It's not that they were worshiping an altogether different God. It's that they constructed an image that was to, as it were, displace something of the true God before them. And they worshiped God by it, which grieved God. And God chastened them. And yet, what do we find Moses doing? Again and again, he's on his face interceding, praying, Oh God, be gracious. Oh God, be gracious. Ezra wouldn't be the only one after Moses. There were others before him. Nehemiah would follow suit and do the same. But brethren, there's one who's even greater than Moses, Ezra, Nehemiah, Isaiah, Daniel, and others who prayed and interceded. We have Jesus Christ, of course, who intercedes on behalf of His people. And what a blessed hope we have of Christ Jesus standing, as it were, in the presence of the glory of God as the one who was condemned, the one who was sacrificed, whose blood was shed, whoever lives to make intercession for the saints. And we take great hope in knowing that. But this being the case, you'll notice Ezra rises at the evening sacrifice. Why is it that Ezra remains so heavy. This is a point that's worth our consideration. Ezra's aware of the way of forgiveness. Ezra is a student of God's Word. And when he's called a scribe of the law, it's not just meaning he's a scribe of the Ten Commandments or the various commandments. It means he's a scribe of the Torah, the revelation of God, which includes both commandments and promises, the covenant of grace. Why is it that Ezra was gripped with such a sense of shame when he knew so clearly the reality of forgiveness? This is something that escapes many modern Christians. The thought is, yeah, sins are bad, but Christ has forgiven our sins, and so let's get on with happiness. You know, sins are difficult and loathsome and ugly and wicked, but the blood of Christ cleanses us from all unrighteousness, so let's not worry about that lowliness of heart. Let's not worry about cultivating and expressing a due sense of our shame. Remember that on that occasion when the woman was made to be leprous because of her dishonoring of God, there was the interceding for her that she might be recovered quickly. And yet the response of God was, if her husband had spat in her face, her shame would remain for a season. That's not the word of man. That's the word of God. There is a propriety in knowing our shame when we cause such shame to be cast upon God. It's not incongruous. It's not contradictory for us to humble ourselves when it is great shame has broken out upon the face of the church of Christ. 
So to understand this better, and yet to do so in such a way that does not overcorrect the errors of our day, consider the passage before us as we think upon the shame of sin after grace. We'll think on three things. Firstly, the kindness that was shown. Secondly, the response that was to God's kindness. And then lastly, remembering God's kindness while we confess our sins. So firstly, then, the kindness that was shown. This is the backdrop of much of what Ezra is wrestling through. Notice to whom this kindness was shown. In verse 7, we're shown that this people was a rebellious people. Since the days of our fathers, have we been in a great trespass unto this day. That language is instructive, it's enlightening. Since the days of our fathers, plural, not just our father as if one generation preceding, but the fathers which preceded us, a long train, a long line of generations that have rejected and rebelled against the Word of God. In other words, Ezra is indicating something. There is a long heritage of rebellion against God. That's something when we have our perspective right, and our perspective, if right, is focused upon the glory due unto God's name. When we see that there's a long heritage with which we are concerned of dishonoring God's name, that's something that should humble us. But right now, Ezra is noticing this as the people to whom God showed kindness. This long line, this weighty heritage of rebellion is the people to whom God showed kindness. It was a people for whom God did not forsake them, but remembered them. Notice, though they were delivered, verse 7, into the hand of the kings of the lands, to the sword, to captivity, to a spoil, to confusion of face as it is this day, yet for a little space grace hath been showed from the Lord our God to leave us a remnant to escape. You see, the kindness shown was shown to a people, we can say it this way, unworthy of the kindness, undeserving of the kindness. It was a kindness that is in the Scripture here called grace and mercy. And so it is, verse 9, but God hath extended mercy unto us in the sight of the kings of Persia to give us a reviving and to set up the house of our God to repair the desolations thereof and so on. What's the point? The point is, the kindness was shown to people who were still constituted as sinners, undeserving of this mercy. And notice, as he will say later, he says in verse 13, after all that has come upon us for our evil deeds and for our great trespass, seeing that thou our God has punished us less than our iniquities deserve, and has given us such deliverance as this. Here's something to remember. The exile, the destruction of Jerusalem, was in no way the just punishment for their sins. It was less than what the people deserved. Now, if you were to be present at the destruction of Jerusalem, you would see bodies which had been put to death. You would see the walls broken down. You would see the various wicked ones tearing down the walls, burning the temple, taking the treasures of the temple away. You would see women who were lifeless, children who had been killed. All of this had strewn the road and the streets around Jerusalem. You would see others who were hooked through their lip in chains as enslaved now, being carried away from Jerusalem unto Babylon. 
All of this would be seen, and you would be right to join with Jeremiah in lamenting the grievous affliction that had fallen upon God's people. But you would be wrong to say, this is what they deserve, because they deserve far worse. That's the point. When you and I sin, and the Lord chastens us, you're wrong to say, this is what I deserve, because you deserve far worse. It's right that God chasten us. But brethren, it's a kindness that God's chastening us. It's not a deserving. It's not justice being satisfied. When we sin and God disciplines us, that's not our deserving. That is the Lord's kindness in disciplining us. If we receive what we deserve, brethren, the earth would open up our bodies would be consumed and our souls would enter into that lasting torment of misery forever. Ezra's mindful of that. And so he's saying, you've shown us kindness. You've not eradicated us. You've not consigned us unto torment, though there was tremendous and weighty affliction. Yet you've preserved a remnant and you've privileged us to be brought back to the land of promise, and you've supplied us all that's needed that we should rebuild Jerusalem. And why is that important? You notice that Ezra makes much of this in verse 9 when he says, you've given us a reviving to set up the house of our God and to repair the desolations thereof and to give us a wall in Judah and in Jerusalem. Why is that important to Ezra? It's because the temple is the manifestation of the gracious presence of God, that he is pleased to dwell with his people by grace. It's the center under the old covenant where the sacrifices would be offered. It's the testimony of the old covenant, most clearly of the blood of the mediator that would be shed. In other words, what Ezra's getting at is this, you've been kind to us to restore to us the proclamation of the gospel. Whereas we deserve to be cursed and condemned, yet you've privileged us who are unworthy to have the ordinances and the means of grace to hold forth Christ Jesus unto us again. This is the kindness shown to us. It was shown negatively, in not treating them as their sins deserve, but it was shown positively in providing them not only life and liberty from their bondage, but life and liberty to hear the gospel. Here's something for us to remember. When we've sinned, to hear the gospel again is an incalculable privilege It's a privilege, a kindness that is unable to be duly considered and weighed and measured. And so, brethren, here's a question before we go further. Does that privilege resonate at all in your heart and in your mind? You think of the ways we've spoken, the things that we've done. You think of the way that our brothers and sisters have turned in many ways from such clear teaching of God's Word. And yet, brethren, however wickedness has prevailed in our day, and however many compromises there are in our day, yet we have no hesitation in saying it's not just in our congregation, but many other congregations, that the Gospel is preached, that the good news is proclaimed, that Christ Jesus is held forth. And here's the incongruity between our day and Ezra's day or at least Ezra in his day, and those who assembled with him. We have failed to consider the weightiness of that kindness. We have failed to consider the privilege afforded to us of the truth of Christ Jesus. The kindness shown is the testimony of God unto his people that he is a gracious God, a God who forgives sin, and who sanctifies and saves his people. You remember 
that all of those sacrifices did not only testify of the forgiveness of sins, but they were a means as well unto something further, unto the enjoyment of the holy presence of God by which God's people would be sanctified to be holy as well. Here's the point. Here's the relevance to our day. The setting up of gospel preaching in and of itself is a privilege because by it we hear the way of the forgiveness of our sins. But it is a privilege as well in this that it holds forth the means by which we should likewise be sanctified, that we should be made holy and enjoy fellowship with God who is holy. See, the privilege is in fact the fact of the forgiveness of our sins. But it's also by way of the sanctifying, the cleansing of us unto the enjoyment of the holy fellowship of a holy God. We could say it simply, the kindness is this, that God holds forth to His people, erring and sinful though they are, the way of fellowship with God by grace. Now when that's remembered, we start to see why it is that Ezra is so deeply troubled at what he's heard. You see, what's happened is an imbalance in many ways in our day. And so there's an imbalance in response to certain errors that says, well, We're glad for the gospel. Well, we're glad for the gospel. Ezra was glad for the gospel. But there's, as it were, a short-circuiting of what the gospel is unto. The gospel is unto the forgiveness of our sins. It is by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone that we're pardoned. But brethren, remember this, that the pardoning of our sins is also for the cleansing of our sins. And Christ, who is given to pardon us, also gave Himself to purify us, to be a people zealous of good works, unto the enjoyment of the fellowship of God. Far too many people have shot low in the true target. The true target is not just my conscience being pardoned and cleansed, but my whole person being sanctified to the enjoyment of God Almighty and Most Holy. So when we see this kindness shown by none less than God Himself, which in Ezra's day was preeminently shown in the restoring of the Jews to Jerusalem and the rebuilding of the temple and the reinstituting of the priests and so on, in our day, it's everywhere that the means of grace are administered. The kindness is shown to us His people. But notice, secondly, the response to this kindness. What was the response? Well, you see it in a variety of ways testified and displayed. Verse 10, there's the testimony of the forsaking of thy commandments. In verse 14, there's the word of breaking thy commandments, and likewise of joining in affinity with the people. We can summarize the display of this response in two ways. It consisted in a turning from God, and it consisted in a turning unto profane people. So it consisted in a turning from God and turning unto a rebellious people. You see, this is contrary to the kindness shown. The kindness is meant to lead us to God. The kindness is meant to draw us from ourselves, from the world, from sin, unto God. But what's happened is, though God was kind to God's people, they actually turned from God unto the nations. And brethren, this is the essence of sin. This is why Paul is commending the Lord's grace unto the Thessalonians, he ascribes glory and praise to God whose grace joined power with the word preached in that he was assured of their effectual calling and their election because they turned from idols 
to God. But this is the opposite of that. They turned from God, as it were, to idols. Now, it wasn't specifically idolatry that was before them, but it was that which would lead to idolatry, which God so clearly testified. And so you'll remember in verse 1, the report comes. They've separated themselves, they've not separated themselves from the people of the lands, but rather, what have they done? Verse 2, they've taken of their daughters for themselves and for their sons, so that the holy seed, the sanctified seed, the seed which was to be separated unto God, have mingled themselves with the people of those lands. The hand of the princes and rulers hath been chief in this trespass. And God, of course, warned them, as Ezra remembers in verses 11 and 12, that they were to avoid the filthiness of the people of the lands and their abominations. And as a means to that, they were not to give their daughters to their sons or take their daughters unto their sons or seek the peace or wealth of these lands forever. Why? Well, because, as he says, we considered this briefly last week, these pagans would turn your children unto their idols. And so this joining an affinity with those out of covenant with God was a sure means to lead God's people unto idolatry. Brethren, we can say it simply this way, this is the thanks that God receives from His people for His great kindness to them. This response is full of contradiction. You remember as Paul writes in Romans chapter 2 and verse 4, as he's reproving a large number of people, he says, Despisest thou the riches of His, that is God's goodness and forbearance and longsuffering, not knowing that the goodness of God leadeth thee to repentance. But see, here's the problem. Here's the breakdown. Here's the contradiction. The goodness that was shown of God to His people. Instead of being embraced to lead them unto further repentance, was actually, as it were, embraced to lead them unto licentiousness. It is as if they believed what is reproved in Jeremiah 7 and verse 10 when he puts in the mouth of God's rebellious ones, we are delivered to do all these abominations. This is the response. Whether explicitly or implicitly, they were living as if the grace and mercy shown to them gave them the liberty to do whatever they desired. Well, here's a beautiful young woman Here's a rich young woman. I'll give my son to her. And, you know, yep, there's something I need to overlook here, but I'll overlook it, and I'll expect that my son might lead her into the truth. Here's a young man who's strong and mighty and has many lands, and here's my daughter. I'm going to give her unto him. And he's a morally upstanding person. Yeah, of course, he doesn't worship the same God, but big deal. You know, my daughter, she'll be faithful. She'll stand this test of time. And God is seeing through all of this. And He's saying, I've not delivered you. I've not liberated you so that you can go and practice abominations as those who are out of covenant. I've delivered you so that you can walk in the liberty of my kingdom. That you would be delivered from the bondage of sin. Remember, as Paul says, God's kindness and mercy is an argument unto faith and obedience. 1 Corinthians 6.20, ye are bought with a price, therefore glorify God in your body and your soul, which are God's. God's purchase of us, His redeeming of us, is not so that we can say, here's my card of grace, so don't bother me with holiness. Rather, we realize that blood which Christ shed, that grace which is shown, is a purchasing grace, is a purchasing price that claims me now to live comprehensively to the glory of God. And this isn't out of mere outward constraint. 
It transforms us to love God. It's to lead us of His goodness to repent. You see an example of this in the life of Joseph. If you look at Genesis chapter 39, in spite of the many troubles that he faces, the many afflictions that fell upon him, you'll notice in Genesis 39 that he finds grace in the sight of his earthly master. And indeed, he serves faithfully. But it is that as he prospers, that Potiphar's wife seeks that wickedness to be committed. Verse 7 of Genesis 39, The master's wife cast her eyes upon Joseph, and she said, Lie with me. But he, that is Joseph, refused. And notice his word. He said unto his master's wife, Behold, my master wotteth that is knoweth not what is with me in the house. He hath committed all that he hath to my hand. There is none greater in this house than I. Neither hath he kept back anything from me but thee, because thou art his wife. How then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? This isn't the language of this is merely what's right. This is the acknowledgement of what's right. But it's the expression of a soul which loves what is right. How can I do? What argument could you actually pursue with me that would ever make me to see that I should do this wickedness? God forbid that I should entertain this wickedness. God has been most kind to me, most generous to me. He's been liberal toward me. Yea, your own husband, my master, has been generous to me. And his generosity is an argument for me is a compulsion to me, is a movement of my soul within me, that I should not do this wickedness and sin against God. Here's the point. The proper response to God's mercy and kindness and goodness is further and earnest and sincere commitment to His Word. It is the conforming of our lives to His Word. In other words, the mark of grace is not the profession of grace. It's the possession of grace that leads us into holiness. Now, we'll profess it. We'll testify of it. But our lives will testify of it. Our lives will demonstrate it. And now you return to Ezra's life. And what is it that the people who have been shown mercy are doing? Well, it's not necessarily that they're unconverted, as we'll see in time to come. But it is at best that they have backslidden. And in their compromise, they were well nigh being cast off. Because their response was to abuse God's kindness. And to eye as it were, look what God's doing. And the riches were accruing and the blessings were enjoying. And look at these beautiful young women and look at these handsome young men. And let's join in affinity with them and we'll strengthen ourselves together perhaps. There's an implication that they were mindful of the great strength of the empire of Persia. And they were thinking to themselves, we'll join with the nations that remain here and strengthen ourselves so that we'll be able to secure our land, our houses, our privileges against that of the empire that still stood over us. But whatever the case, their arguments were ignoring the commandment of God. And so their action was abusing the grace of God. And this strikes Ezra. It's this which actually, as you read the passage, is all woven together. And so he says such things as, verse 10, Now, O God, what shall we say after this? For we have forsaken thy commandments. He says in verse 9, Our God hath not forsaken us in our bondage, but hath extended mercy unto us. This is the weight of His burden. You who have shown grace unto us are worthy to be shown glad obedience from us. But instead, we've taken Your grace and we have abused it unto our own shame. This is why Ezra is saying, verse 6, I am ashamed and blush 
to lift up my face to Thee, my God. For our iniquities are increased over our head, and our trespass is grown up unto the heavens. Brethren, when this is considered in light of the great mercy of God, you'll understand why he says in verse 14, Should we again break thy commandments and join in affinity with the people of these abominations? He says in verse 15, O Lord God of Israel, thou art righteous, for we remain yet escaped as it is this day. Behold, we are before thee in our trespasses, for we cannot stand before thee because of this. Here's the point. Ezra was actually displaying the right response, while many in Israel were not. Ezra's allegiance was unto God. He saw that our blessing, our enjoyment, was contingent upon God sustaining us in His grace. And what he's saying is, how can we hope to stand in the state of blessing if we continue in all of these iniquities, in all of these trespasses. It will demand further judgment. And so Ezra consumed with a due sense of these things, petitions God by confessing these sins. Now notice lastly, the further remembering of God's kindness. God had been kind, and God was kind. Now notice that all of this takes place, as we hinted at last week, at the evening sacrifice. The Lord had established two daily sacrifices that were to take place every day of the year. There are other sacrifices that you're well familiar with that have happened occasionally, Some sins uh, demanded certain sacrifices. And so this sin would demand this kind of sacrifice. Other sacrifices were committed annually, such as the Day of Atonement. But there were sacrifices that were offered day and night, every day throughout the year. And you'll see this in Exodus chapter 29. If you turn there, Exodus chapter 29 Notice the embedded mercy that is here before us. Exodus 29, and at verse 38. We read, Now this is that which thou shalt offer upon the altar, two lambs of the first year, day by day, continually. In other words, this daily sacrifice shall be offered every day, all the time, perpetually. The one lamb thou shalt offer in the morning, and the other lamb thou shalt offer at even. With the one lamb a tenth deal of flour mingled with the fourth part of an hen of beaten oil, and the fourth part of an hen of wine for a drink offering. And the other lamb thou shalt offer at even, and shalt do thereto according to the meat offering of the morning, and according to the drink offering thereof for a sweet savor, an offering made by fire unto the Lord. So notice before going further, that here is a daily sacrifice, morning and evening, that's to be offered every day, every year, all the time. That's what Ezra is referring to when he says, at the time of the evening sacrifice, the daily sacrifice that was offered morning and evening. But notice still, he goes further in Exodus, in chapter 29. He says in verse 42, This shall be a continual Burn offering throughout your generations at the door of the tabernacle, the congregation before the Lord. Notice this language. Where I will meet you to speak there unto thee. And there I will meet with the children of Israel. The tabernacle shall be sanctified by my glory. And I will sanctify the tabernacle, the congregation, the altar. I will sanctify also both Aaron and his sons, to minister to me in the priest's office. And I will dwell among the children of Israel and will be their God. And they shall know that I am the Lord their God that brought them forth out of the land of Egypt, that I may dwell among them. I am the Lord their God. What's the point? 
This testifies of multiple things. It testifies of the need and provision of atonement. Every day throughout the year, there was a constant reminder to God's people, I meet with you in terms of grace. I come to you. I who am holy come to you and have presented to your attention your need of a substitute every day, morning and evening, not just on the great day of atonement, not just on the occasional times when one committed a sin that required they bring a sacrificial animal to the temple, but every day of the year there was this witness. You need blood to be shed. And it's by blood shed that I welcome you into my presence and dwell among you. Again and again, this testimony is most clear to the end that what is it that is said of Christ in the book of Hebrews? Well, he offered not up the blood of bulls and goats and lambs and sheep and so on. He offered up his own blood. But you remember that Hebrews testifies of this as well. That he did not take the blood of bulls and goats and lambs and sheep into the holy place made without hands. But he took himself and presented himself there. Here's the point, brethren. You and I stand accepted with God and have hope before God solely by the blood of Christ Jesus. And that blood is sufficient in light of the greatness of the sins of God's people and of ourselves to minister hope as we look to God by that sacrifice. But we see something further. The knowledge of that sacrifice doesn't lead to levity. It doesn't lead to carelessness. Because the sacrifice is a testimony of the vileness, the wickedness, the enormity of our sin. How can that which demands the blood of Christ ever be thought upon by us as what is light and simple and little and nothing to be concerned with? See, Ezra understood that there was hope by the sacrifice. And we understand that there is hope by the sacrifice. But what is it that particularly the morning and evening sacrifice testified of? That I, the Lord your God who am holy, will dwell with you. You remember as Peter says, if you call upon God, who will judge the living and the dead, who is most holy Himself. If you call Him Father, if you have that intimate, earnest, delightful fellowship with God, who is holy, be ye holy in all manner of conversation likewise. In other words, when we rightly understand both the atoning significance of the blood of Christ, which sacrifices point to, and the sanctifying message of the blood of Christ, which the sacrifices pointed to. Far from this leading us to carelessness about sin, it will lead us unto an earnestness about holiness. It is a Christ-saturated hope. And when that hope is found, it leads us to loathe and detest those scandalous sins that break out upon the face of the church. And it leads us to long for and desire holy fellowship with our holy God. Was Ezra right to be so heavy? Well, brethren, question is obviously not, was Ezra right to be so heavy when he understood the significance of the evening sacrifice, the grace of God, the mercies of God? The question is, how can any avoid that heaviness who would know the holiness of a gracious and merciful God? As we close, brethren, here is a call 
for us to examine ourselves. How is it that we think first about our own sins? We start there because though this passage doesn't go into Ezra's own sins, you remember that of Ezra, he was one, as it testifies earlier in the book, who was a scribe that, verse 10 of chapter 7, prepared his heart to seek the law of the Lord and to do it, and to teach in Israel statutes and judgment. Ezra was no hypocrite. Ezra was no one who stood there and said, well, yep, they've got their sins, I'm going to ignore mine. He had prepared his heart to seek after that intimacy with God and fellowship with Him in conformity to His holy will. And it's needed for us to be earnest in the same. Do I use the grace of God as an excuse for my carelessness in holiness? Do I use the grace of God, the blood of Christ, as an excuse for my little care of my sins? See, there's a world of difference, an absolute universe of difference between a right appropriation of the blood of Christ to our soul's gladness and a simplistic, verbal, intellectual appeal to that blood while having no real concern about our sins. The two are not the same. Where there is a true understanding of the love and of the blood of Christ Jesus, it will lead us to hate our sins all the more. It will lead us to despise our sins all the more. Now, that's not only what will characterize us, because there will be a sincere joy and delight in the love of God. But the love of God, think of that expression, not only the love of God to us, which is fundamental, but our love to God. Who is that God who loves us? Who is that God whom we profess to love? He is the holy God. How can we say that we love God if we don't love what He loves? How can we say we delight in God if we don't delight in what He delights in? We're not saying that we never sin or there aren't seasons of great compromise. But we'll see that when those seasons of compromise come and are identified, it does not lead God's people to say, the blood of Christ, the grace of God, lay off lighten up. It leads God's people to a humbling of their souls and to a repenting of their sins. So brethren, we have need to examine our lives. We claim, I trust and I hope that it is more than just a claim that the blood of Christ is precious to us. Brethren, if it is, it will lead us to repentance. But we must also examine our day. And we must examine and say, what's the general temperature of the church today? Is there generally an increase of godliness and piety for which we would give thanks? And to the degree that we witness this, we do give thanks. But are there evidences of the opposite? Of a cooling of affection? Of a joining and a compromising with the world? in their rebellion against God. If that's the case, there is a need, of course, of humbling ourselves. Brethren, But we must not err in moving, as it were, the carelessness of our present age unto a paralyzing carefulness that is still resting in ourselves. It was at the evening sacrifice that Ezra made petition. And we, at the testimony of Christ Jesus, with the knowledge of the sacrifice He's provided, of which morning and evening sacrifices were arrows, pointers, signs and testimonies of the great sacrifice, when we remember the sacrifice of Christ, it is incumbent on us to confess our sins. Not just ours personally, but to confess the sins of our people corporately.
This is what Ezra does. But someone might say, well, this is just Ezra. And after all, he's a scribe. He's like a superhero among Christians. But notice, remember the context. It's not just Ezra. But verse 4 says, Then were assembled unto me everyone that trembled at the words of the God of Israel. What Ezra's leading in is actually indicative of what all follow in who tremble at the Word of God. Those who love God's Word, when they are faced by open rebellion against it, they are brought to be humbled and to intercede and confess confess and plead the grace of God. And as we'll see, moreover, it will lead them to repent and to use what influence they have to rectify what has gone awry. Well, to do so, brethren, we must meditate upon the glory of God who is worthy only of obedience. We ought to meditate upon the kindness of God toward us, the goodness of God, which is meant to lead us to repentance. And we must do so entering into the wickedness and reality of both our and other sins. But to do so rightly, to do so graciously, we must do so remembering the work of Christ, which is able to forgive us all of our sins, even as the Scriptures testify. In other words, the shame that is known because of sin after grace is a shame which is able to be healed by the grace of Christ. And so as we come face to face with our own and other sins, let us also take our face the blood of Christ Jesus and appeal to Him for pardon and for purifying and that He would further His work and purify it more and more unto the perfect day. Would you stand with me for prayer?